Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Anthropologically Speaking. I'm Katie. And I'm Isabel, and unfortunately today, Is will not be joining us. But she'll be listening from at home, so hey, Iz. Hey, um, <laughs> Today we've got a really fun episode. Um, it's going to be talking about a bit of a taboo topic that not that many people really want to hear about. Um, necessarily, but you're going to hear about it anyway. Um, (laughs) um, Also worth noting that it's another at-home edition, our third at-home edition, so our audio might uh, be a little choppy some point, so our apologies for that. Um, But today, without further ado, we will be talking about human decomposition. (laughs) Yay! And we'd like to disclose that it may get a little bit gruesome at times, so if you're not willing to listen to that sort of stuff, feel free to Log out now. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, now's your exit point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but human decomp is really relevant for both forensic archaeologists and also relevant for uh, bioarchaeologists that are looking at past humans. Um, so yeah, decomposition most simply is the breakdown of the organic material in the body. Um, it begins immediately following death. And it, there are both microscopic and macroscopic changes and biochemical changes that occur. In yeah. decomposition. So, yeah. Isabel, start talking about what happens immediately as soon as you take your last breath. We are talking minutes after you t- take your last breath. Seconds. Yeah. To decompose. Yeah. So there's some soft tissue changes that happen um, that are assessed by a pathologist at an autopsy. So there's early visible um, post mortem changes, and you guys might know them. They're called algor mortis, liver mortis, and rigor mortis, and they happen in approximately that order. However, algor and liver mortis often happen simultaneously. Um, We'll describe those ones in a lot more detail a little later on, but this is just kind of an overview of what happens immediately after you die. So as those um, chemical processes are are occurring, also a chemical decomposition occurs in the form of autolysis? <laughs> yeah, I think it's autolysis. autolysis, but some people pronounce it as autolysis, so it depends. Okay, gotcha. And then we also have putrefaction, which Katie's going to talk about right now. Yeah, so uh, autolysis is self-digestion, effectively. Um, if you break down the word auto and lysis, it's, it's self-digestion, <laughs> um, or self-lysing, to lyse something. Um, but, uh, yeah, it happens immediately after death and that's all in life. We have some really great, uh, microbes, bacteria, and they live in like our stomach. Um, they live in different places in our body and they're really helpful during life. Um, things like digestion wouldn't be the same without them. (laughs) Um, but after death, they will turn on you. (laughs) So they, it's basically your body's own, um, enzymes, uh, eating itself. Um, And that ties into putrefaction, which is the microbial deterioration of tissues. Um, So there's bloating, discoloration. So autolysis is more of um, your own enzymes, uh, whereas putrefaction is going to be more of the microbes. Um, And putrefaction leads to bloating, discoloration, um, all the things that you kind of associate with a nice corpse. (laughs) A nice corpse. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to talk about there's actually five stages of decay. Um, they are start with fresh, go to bloat, and then active decay to advanced decay to dried remains. 
So I'm going to talk about the first two, and then Katie's going to take it away with the last three. So our first stage is fresh. So it's just this, just our period from death until the first signs of bloating. And there is, um, I don't know if autolysis starting. Yeah. <laughs> and the skin starts to get real pale. So this is just like the body's going to look relatively normal still and probably not have a whole lot of discoloration, just looking very pale and probably getting a little bit cold because mm-hmm. the blood stopped pumping so you're going to be you know you don't have that color that is provided by the blood under your skin exactly um so stage two we have the beginning of the bloating and discoloration so starts with putrefaction which was talked about earlier um at about 24 hours there's some blue green discoloration of the abdomen and i think it's this is the kind of stuff that looks a little bit marbly and mm-hmm. you really it's not often shown on like TV and stuff. It's a little bit it's like literally blue green marbling on your skin, basically. Um, at 36 hours, it starts to spread through the entire abdominal region. Um, and this is, yeah, this is the marbling of the blood vessels. So this is also when scavengers start to arrive, such as beetles, insects. If you're left out in the woods to rot, it's going to be animals maggots, um, some of those blowflies, and they start to hatch in your body, on your body. Um, The body will begin to experience a strong odor from decomposition fluids that are being created. Um, So with the bloat, what's happening is microbes are breaking down in the body and it's producing gases, and these gases are being trapped under the skin producing this bloat of the uh, corpse. And it's usually most prominent in the abdomen and face, including in your tongue, which is disgusting. Um, And eventually, so the pressure has to be released. Typically through, it can be released through orifices. So any holes in your body, there can be (laughs) this gas just released, I guess, or... You essentially can blow up. And this, like, this is something that um, happens not only in humans, but, like, I've seen in whales. If a whale washes up, it can start, like, ballooning, essentially. And this can happen to humans, too. It's the gases are trapped and they have nowhere to go and they're ballooning. And, I mean, in the case of whales, they sometimes have to puncture the whales in order to get them not to blow up because whales are obviously very large scale. Um, but yeah. yeah, like humans do the same thing. The gases are trapped and they don't have anywhere to go. So it's balloon stomach time. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, <so> it's <laughs> basically the most morbid stage of decomposition because there's also something called skin slippage, which Woo-hoo! will be expanded on later. But it's basically the breakdown of the connections between the dermis and the epidermis um, within four to seven days which means that the skin can essentially slip off of you in a process known as degloving. But again, we'll go into that in more groups, yeah. some detail coming up soon. <laughs> so the third stage is active decay. And in active decay, there's a loss of body mass and there's signs of desiccation. So desiccation is drying out effectively. Um, there's also the maggots are still present, but they're starting to be replaced by beetles because while maggots like the real fresh stuff, beetles start to like it when it's kind of like dry. It's like they like the like, you know, they're like the connoisseurs of the bug world. People <laughs> like the aged fine wine. Beetles like the aged fine flesh. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at beetle the same again. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then stage four is advanced decay. 
So at Advanced Decay, there's very little odor. Um, it's going to look a lot different, but the smell is going to be mostly gone. The skeleton's going to be partly or completely visible. Um, and there's going to be some animal scavenging sometimes. Um, different animals like to come in at different times during the uh, decomposition process. And sometimes they'll get bones to chew on. Um, they'll get bones to play with. I had one forensics professor I think I've mentioned on the show before. Um, he said that the head comes off quite nicely because you don't have that much connecting your head to your body other than uh, soft tissue. Bone wise, it's, there's not much there. Um, and you know, the head becomes a ball. <laughs> it <can just laughs> it's, roll a play, away. it's like a playing ball for like coyotes and stuff. Um, why is that kind of cute? Like, why do I kind of? Yeah, there's the something ball? endearing about it. <laughs> I agree. The head ball. Yeah. <laughs> and at stage five, the remains are dry. The skeleton and the teeth are more durable than the soft tissues. They're going to be the last things left. Um, hard tissues are going to persist after the soft tissue decomposes. And actually, when the remains are unrecognizable, mostly skeletonized, this is one forensic anthropologist is really useful. Because if you have a fresh body, um, you're not really going to need a forensic anthropologist. You're just going to need a medical examiner or a forensic pathologist um, to be able to examine the body because there's lots of soft tissue evidence. But the forensic anthropologist comes into play when uh, the remains are badly decomposed or skeletonized. Um, and of course, skeletons are what our bioarchaeologists work on most of the time, unless they're mummified, uh, but that's a different story. If you wanna check out our episode, Mummy Magic, <laughs> uh, to learn more about mummies. Um, but at stage five, dry remains, it's more difficult to estimate the time since death once decomposition is finished. And uh, time since death or post-mortem interval, PMI, is really important in forensic cases. Um, there starts to be some disarticulation, the bones separate from one another, because although we've got some great joints, like ball and socket joints, hinge joints, um, they really rely mostly on the soft tissue to keep them together, um, ligaments, tendons, muscles, that's what really keeps them in there. So there's gonna, once you're skeletonized, there's gonna be a lot more separation of the bones. Um, and the least stable joints are gonna disarticulate first, and the most stable joints will disarticulate last. Uh, so it really depends on joint type and the amount of soft tissue around the joints. Yeah, so yeah. shall we move on to our friends, the mortises? <laughs> we shall, sounds like a dinner party. <laughs> I'm going over to the mortises tonight. Yeah. <laughs> I'm bringing yeah. my aged fine beetle wine. Yes. <laughs> Yum. <laughs> so our first stage of mortis here is algor mortis, which is actually the cooling of the body after death. So um, this is influenced by things such as body temp before death. So there's a higher baseline temperature with physical activity. So just as an example, if you're running from your murderer and you're all like hot and... <laughs> <laughs> heart's pumping and your body temperature is going to start much higher and then it'll take longer to cool obviously. Um, the clothing or any coverings that you're wearing at time of death can act as an insulation to retain heat which slows the cooling as well um, and additionally one that we might, might not think about initially is body position can influence so obviously if you're 
just sitting out there lying on the ground surface area is at maximum you will cool faster but if you're in such a position as say fetal um, the cooling will be slower because you just have created that more insulation and it just you're warmer <laughs> it's like when you're cold in the winter so exactly yeah um, the next type of mortise is liver mortise um, and of course, alger mortise and liver mortise are not as talked about as their cousin, rigor mortise, but no fear, we will get there. Um, but liver mortise is the pooling of blood. So essentially, it's due to gravity. You have a lack of circulation when you're dead. Um, your heart is not pumping. Um, we rely on our heart to get the blood everywhere. It's a big pump that makes sure the blood's going everywhere in our body. But when the heart isn't pumping, it's just, you know, the, the blood's just chilling, it's not circulating. Um, and liver mortis happens simultaneously with alder mortis. And you get something called lividity, which is skin discoloration. Um, this depends on the position of the body. Uh, for example, uh, if I were laying down uh, the pressure points where my body hits the, if I were on my back, the pressure points where my body hits like the ground or whatever are gonna be white. Um, so pressure points you can think of like maybe if I were on my back maybe my shoulder blades uh, would be white pressure points and the rest would be um, kind of dark red because the blood has pooled um, but when there's a pressure point it doesn't allow the blood to pool there so it's white and this can actually help us tell the position of the body at death and if the body has been moved so if a body was left for example um, and you know, it was left for a couple days and then it was moved, the blood would actually have fixed. So we have two main stages of liver mortis. We have unfixed, which occurs 30 minutes to four hours after death, and that's before the blood coagulates, um, which is kind of, I guess, the jellifying of blood, <laughs> to, to put it that way. Um, and then there's fixed, which is once the blood coagulates, it doesn't change then if the body's moved. So if I killed someone and left them, um, and then I move them two days later, the pressure points and everything are going to look like they were in the original position. So if a medical examiner gets there and it's like, ooh, these pressure points don't match how this person's lying now, we know they've been moved after fixed coagulation. And in general, um, liver mortis peaks about 8 to 12 hours after death. And after 12 hours, it's not really a good post-mortem interval indicator, but it is still useful to learn about movement of the body. Um, so that comes into play with secondary locations, um, that kind of thing at crime scenes. So yeah, that's liver mortis. So then our last and favorite, or most popular, okay. I should say, is rigor mortis, which is just the um, stiffening of the muscles. So at death, um, the muscles relax, but lactic acid eventually builds up. And um, a lack of ATP, which is not produced at death, means that the muscle contraction can't be released. So this begins usually two to four hours after death and peaks at around 12. Uh, and then muscles can stay contracted until the fibers start to decompose about 24 to 48 hours after death. So... Um, environmental factors can influence the onset of rigor. So rapid cooling delays onset. So if you can cool the body immediately, it usually can stay a little bit more flexible. Um, also, 
increased temp at death um, can accelerate onset. So if you have a fever or again, high activity, such as running from your murderer, you may delay that sort of stiffening of the muscles, but it's kind of like the classic, um, I guess, symbol of death or what people associate is like, that's really, it's so stiff that you can't even like begin to try and move a joint. It's pretty crazy, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes, um, you know, you can massage to like kind of break mortis down. Um, but the fun thing about the lactic acid buildup, which is part of what causes rigor mortis is lactic acid is the same thing that's released in your body when you're having like a big workout. Um, that burning sensation you get when you're having like a workout, that's lactic acid. Um, so it's, it's, still doing some stuff after you die. Lactic acid does not give up. (laughs) Everything in your body plays a role after death even. (laughs) Yep. Um, And yeah, then there's, as we mentioned before, there's degloving and skin slippage, uh, which is really, I find it really fascinating. It's of course uh, when the dermis and epidermis, so the uppermost and next most layer of your skin, they start to separate. So it's almost like the person is wearing gloves, which is where degloving comes from. So like your hands, you can just slip the hand skin off like a glove. Um, and the fun thing with that is they've even been able to use degloved skin from fingers and stuff. If the person, like a medical examiner or a tech, wears the hand skin like a glove, you, mm. can, you can fingerprint with it. Um, to try and ascertain identity. So I find skin slippage really interesting. It literally just like slips right off, just like. I love that sound effect. Yeah, (laughs) that's my, that's my degloving sound effect. Yeah. (laughs) I I take commissions if you need a degloving sound effect person. Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, um, I find degloving really interesting, but there are also insects that come at death. So Isabel's going to tell you about them. Yahoo. All right. So insects basically start to colonize your body immediately after death. Um, the insects are actually really important in forensic context because they can provide you a lot of information about, as Katie talked about earlier, that um, postmortem interval. So the type of insect, the insect life cycles, and the succession of species can help to establish the time since death. So anywhere between a few hours to several days to a year, um, the season of death will determine which different species were present in different um, seasons. So that can be really helpful for forensic investigators um, help pinpoint, if it's been a while, you can pinpoint the season a little bit better uh, of the time of death, that is. And then there's, it also can help you to determine the geographic origins of remains. So again, this can help you determine if the body has been moved, if there's evidence of insect activity that's not present in the area that the body is found in. It can help to pinpoint where the body came from instead. Um, it can also help, help ID <laughs> some trauma. So insects are attracted to blood and wounds. They're going to colonize in those wounds first. Um, kind of take them like the easiest entrance into your body. Um, they can also be helped. They can also help to determine the presence of drugs because they, as they eat your skin and your organs and just your skin, but all of you, basically, they take on that chemical signature that drugs would have. And you can I think that's how you can identify them. through. Yeah, the, I think it's a tox, toxicology type screening. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
In addition to insects that can affect decomposition, there's also animals. Um, like we said earlier, animals interact with and alter human remains um, through gnawing and digging and clawing and scavenging. So basically they take different parts of the human body and they either consume it or they move it, um, especially if it's in, found in like a not like a wild context, you're going to have such as things such as like coyotes and birds just taking bones and putting them everywhere. So it's really important for forensic investigators to keep the um, fauna in mind. So you can kind and of even just differentiating between what might be trauma and what might be like a coyote, like took a bite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I remember being taught that you always have to look up because birds will take small bones and put them in their nests. So yeah. That'll remove some fingers and things like that. <laughs> so I think that's yeah. it for insects and animals. Uh, there are different things that can affect the rate of decomposition uh, for a human or, you know, other animals too. Um, rate of decomposition is affected by the environment, like temperature and moisture. For example, acidic soil increases decomposition uh, and it also affects the preservation of bone. Uh, there's also uh, burial uh, versus surface. Um, if they're buried or if they're just left on the surface, that'll really affect how they decompose. Um, the soil chemistry, any funerary structures like a coffin will slow the rate of decomposition. And even uh, today, if you excavate a historic cemetery, you can see grave outlines um, from coffins. Um, and you know, you've also got things like coffin handles and plates, but I digress. Um, uh, yeah, but soils that are more acidic, as I mentioned, result in the faster breakdown and lesser preservation of bone. Um, body coverings like clothing, um, they can prevent the bugs from accessing the remains, but they can also act as insulation and increase the rate of decomposition. Uh, of course, there's insect and animal activity, like Isabel mentioned, and embalming is a huge thing. So when your body is prepared at a funeral home or even embalming that we've seen in the past, like in ancient Egypt, uh, you're undergoing a preservation process. So your body's not gonna decompose like it normally would. Um, you're artificially halting decomposition. So there have even been some people that have been um, exhumed after years and they're, um, they're, they're they're looking pretty good, a little moldy, but they're looking pretty good. Um, but yeah, again, with clothing, um, in the spring and the summer, clothing can uh, slow the rate of decomposition by about two times. In the winter, there's not a significant effect, um, but clothing can also accelerate desiccation, which is again, drying, and natural mummification. Um, there's also something called saponification, which is really interesting. So saponification is also known as adipocere, which is like corpse wax. <laughs> Fun. Um, if you want to know a really famous adipocere type mummy, soap lady, um, really great friend of mine. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Um, yeah, no, the soap lady is really interesting. Um, but saponification is when fatty tissue is converted to adipocere. Um, there's the anaerobic bacterial hydrolysis of fat. It's waxy, white, gray, tan, black. It's crumbly. It's not water soluble at all. So it'll really preserve. Um, it replaces, preserves, and approximates tissues. And it's really hard to remove. 
So it usually occurs in an ox unoxygenated, alkaline, moist, and wet conditions, um, which are unlikely if the remains are exposed. There's an onset at a minimum of three weeks, but more likely at one to two months, uh, maybe even more than this. Tissues are essentially replaced by autopsier. Uh, Saponified remains can last for centuries, which can be really misleading for postmortem interval. Yeah, so we also have differential decomposition, um, which just means a different body, different parts of the body um, de decompose at different rates. So it can be caused by injuries, exposure to physical or chemical agents, um, a prior bacterial infection that you had in life. Um, so basically just, yeah, literally just means that different parts of your body are going to decompose at different rates and you'll see that in the remains. Um, there's also something called delayed decomposition, which is mummification and it's just preservation by desiccation or drying. Also the adipocere can, um, well it doesn't delay decomposition, but it helps to preserve the remains a little bit better. And mummification can be natural and intentional, and this often happens in arid, envir arid environments. Um, so yeah, that's delayed decomp. Uh, yeah, there's also diagenesis, which is just referring to the chemical, physical, and biological changes to bone after initial decomposition. Um, bones and teeth can be altered by weathering, soil, plants, transport by gravity or water, and things like microbes. So yeah, there's like just tons of different environments, obviously, that bodies can decompose in, and they do so differently in these different environments, such as in water, bones disarticulate from the joints much easier. In the heat, bodies can mummify easier, not easily. Mummies are quite rare. Um, they bogs, can naturally mummify, yeah. Yes. Um, bogs can preserve bodies really well, such as the Tolland man is a good example of that. Um, and different environments can also differentially preserve bones. So you can have crumbling and disintegration of bones, which um, indicates the importance of recording and which has a lot of implications for bioarchaeology, where you're just mm -hmm. trying to get as much information as you can from small remains, little remains usually. <laughs> and with mummies too, even though they're hard to find the bioarchaeological record, we can find them in um, modern times. One really sad example is a lot of people that cross the border at the US-Mexico border um, who are undocumented often end up mummified if they pass away during their voyage. So that's an interesting thing, I guess. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, quite sad. But body farms are interesting um, because they're controlled way that we can look at human decomposition and we can look at um, helping with forensic cases and learn about decomposition in different environments. There aren't a ton of them, but they're all over the world. Uh, so as to study different climates, the most famous one is in Knoxville, Tennessee. It was started by the forensic anthropologist Bill Bass. And excitingly enough, Canada has a brand new body farm, our very first one. It's located near Trois-Rivières, Quebec, uh, in Bécancourt. Uh, it's known as a secure site for research in thanatology. Um, so, of course, these aren't open to the public, but they're really helpful for learning about human decomposition. Because up until now, a lot of places have used pigs, which are good approximates, but they're not really the same as knowing how a human decomposes. So that is our very condensed, fast-paced, moving version of human decomposition. Um, Isabel Dion Dior, non-human listener shout out of the week 
Sure, really quickly, I'll shout out my sister's, I think, four month, three and a half month old kitten. His name is Beans, and he's a little orange guy, and his favorite thing to do is snuggle. So, hi, Beans. Hi, Beans. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, so, yeah, thanks for listening to our third at home episode of Anthropologically Speaking. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, don't forget to follow us on our social medias um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And uh, yeah. If you have a recommendation for an episode, feel free to let us know. And uh, until then, stay bony. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.